Amen. Well, uh, thank you, Brother uh, Sam. If, uh, if, you, if I get to take credit for the weather, then I'm going to give uh, Sam credit for uh, giving the Cowboys a day off today. That was kind of nice. Uh, I can guarantee you they won't lose today uh, because, of course, they play uh, tomorrow night. We're huge Cowboys fans around my family. Uh, my dad was uh, born here in East Texas in Longview, and I was, raised, uh, I was raised in a Christian home, but I was raised to where I was taught that you had to be three things if you were a Christian. Being a Christian meant, number one, you were a Baptist, number two, you were a Republican, and number three, you were a Dallas Cowboys fan. So, uh, of course, as I grew up and matured in the faith and became uh, spiritually mature, uh, I uh, came to realize that, of course, really only one of those three things is necessary, and I'll uh, let you decide which one. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I tell you what, uh, it's been a rough stretch for the Cowboys. My uh, kids, we have six kids, the oldest is 29. They don't believe me when I tell them the Cowboys used to win Super Bowls. You know, they used to be pretty good. They don't believe it. Lately, it seems like, uh, uh, you know, the Cowboys always like to get off to a good start that gets you all excited, you're thrilled, and then, uh, then it does not end well. It kind of reminds me of uh, the Amish Airlines. You know, it looks great at first, but <laughs> it just doesn't seem to end well. I'm not sure. In fact, I told my kids, I told my kids recently, now listen, when I die, I want you to be sure you get six Dallas Cowboys to be my pallbearers so they can let me down one more time. Um, <laughs> all right, enough of that. Uh, I'm going to try to get through this as quickly as I can. Um, I want to talk to you this morning about why Bible prophecy matters now more than ever. Now, I've been teaching and preaching about Bible prophecy for more than 30 years, but I've got to tell you, the last two or three years in particular, it seems like the stage is being set like never before. Matter of fact, in the last week, it seems like the stage is being set like never before. Uh, but one thing that I've noticed uh, through the years of ministry is that a lot of Christians have a very anthropocentric view of the Bible. In other words, they think the Bible is only about personal salvation, personal Christian living, life here and now on this earth. They tend to be consumed by that speck on the timeline of eternity that begins when they're born and ends when they die. And, you know, to be sure, personal salvation, redemption through the blood of Christ is crucial, and the Bible reveals the only way that a person can be rescued from the penalty of sin is through Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection and by faith alone in Him. But there is more to the Bible than simply individual redemption. And there's more to human life between, than between that period between the great cradle and the grave. The Bible is not simply a book of personal redemption. It's a book that reveals God's plan for all of creation. God is working out His plan for the entire world, and the Bible explains that plan. It's a book of creation history. And as you might expect, that plan has a beginning and an end, just like the Bible itself. God's Word reveals His plan of the ages, His plan for all of creation from beginning to end. Now, it wouldn't surprise me in the least, especially in a great Bible-teaching church uh, like Flint Baptist, that just about everybody in this room can quote the very first verse in the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We all know the beginning of creation. It's, it amazes me how many people read these first three words in the Bible? It's actually two words in the original Hebrew, and yet they don't naturally ask, okay, here's the beginning. What about the end? We don't do that with any other book that we read, and yet the Bible has a clear beginning 
and a clear end. It tells a story. It's a a story that we call God's plan of the ages. And if you look at a panoramic view of 6,000 years of human history, we're sitting here in the church age. There's a transitional time that will lead us into the kingdom age. The Bible calls that the 70th week of Daniel. But we're right here in what the Bible calls the last days. It's the last days because the only age to come is the glorious kingdom age when Christ comes back triumphant and takes the throne and rules in perfect peace and righteousness and justice. But if you go back to Genesis, it doesn't take long for this first major plot twist in God's plan of the ages to develop. You get to Genesis 3 after the fall and the serpent uh, approaches Adam and Eve. They are tempted. He tells them lies, convinces them uh, that God's the antagonist and He's the hero. And then God has this conversation a key moment in God's Word that sets the stage for the rest of Scripture with the serpent. And here's what He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. He, that's, uh, that's the, the ultimately uh, talking about bruising the head of Christ, and you shall bruise His heel. That word bruise means to grip hard. It's a very interesting Hebrew word. Uh, it's used in a variety of contexts, but here it's basically reminding us that the serpent, Satan, is going to grip hard at a relatively harmless uh, part of Christ, his heel. He won't be able to destroy him. Uh, Jesus Christ defeated death, hell, and the grave when He rose on the third day. But Christ, on the other hand, is going to strike at the most vulnerable part of the human body, the head. And by doing so, He's going to crush Satan entirely. He will destroy them, Him. So this is really the beginning of the narrative of all of creation history, the cosmic struggle between good and evil. You see, God created mankind with free will. He didn't create a bunch of automatons that had no choice. He gave us a choice, and He also gave us a warning. He said, I love you so much, I don't want you to take, a, to, to take any risks. I don't want you to eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because when you eat up from it, it'll kill you. You'll die. And I love you too much. I want this fellowship. I want this intimacy. He didn't force Adam and Eve to march right over and take a great big bite, but that's exactly what we did. With our free will, we chose to rebel against a holy God. But then God, in His amazing love, even though He would have been perfectly just and is perfectly just to send everyone to hell as a result of that uh, free choice that we made, took the extraordinary step of sending His Son and our Savior to the earth to die in your place and my place on the cross so that we might have eternal life. That's how much He loves us. He loves us enough to get us out of our own uh, predicament. But this is the beginning that you see on the screen here of this narrative. But it leaves us with more questions than answers, most notably, when? When will this happen? When will Satan be defeated? It's kind of a teaser for the end times. So right at the beginning of this book of beginnings, soon after in the beginning that we just read, we see a plot line develop. But amazingly, most believers are content to leave that plot line unresolved. So we go from a cosmic battle that ensued in the garden to full circle at the end of the Bible, a new heaven and a new earth, the culmination of God's plan of the ages. God's plan of the ages will culminate in the return of Christ to make all things new, He says. So Bible prophecy matters now more than ever because God is working out His plan toward a logical conclusion. And don't miss this, we are getting closer and closer and closer to the end of that plan. You know, the last two verses in the Bible, it's, it's amazing to me how many people can recite Genesis 1-1, but how many know these two verses? The last two verses in the Bible, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Even so, amen, even so, come 
Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Bible prophecy matters now more than ever because we want the words that God left us with in His self-revelation to mankind, the last two word, b- verses in the Bible, to echo in our hearts until He comes. And so I've got ten uh, signs of the times, if you will. I'm going to give you five this morning in our time allotted, and then I'm going to come back tonight and do uh, the other five. Why, why does Bible prophecy matter? Why are conferences like the one I just came from in Norman, Oklahoma, put on by Prophecy Watchers, filling up across the country over the last few years? Why are radio and TV shows and podcasts and YouTube videos about Bible prophecy off the charts? It's because things are happening today that relate directly to specific end times prophecies. So I want to suggest ten reasons I believe very strongly we're living in the last of the last days, ways the stage is being set for the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And the first one is this, number one, the granting of statehood to Israel in 1948 really uh, was an enormous uh, event in Bible prophecy. You have to understand, for 1,800 years, there was no Israel on our Rand McNally maps. It was just an ancient historical city. And yet, Bible prophecy teaches quite plainly that Israel plays a central role in the end times. If you go to Daniel's pivotal prophecy, we don't have time to flesh this all out, but Daniel gives a 490-year prophecy at the end of the uh, Babylonian captivity, at the end of Jeremiah's 70 years of captivity. Daniel prays and says, what's next for your people, for your holy city? And God says, well, the next phase is not just 70 years, but 70 times 7, 490 years. It's often called the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel because the Hebrew word Shabuah, which means seven-year period, is translated weeks. In our English Bible, it just means a week of years. So we've got a 490-year plan. The first 483 years of that were fulfilled to the day of Christ's triumphal entry when He came riding into Jerusalem in that fateful final week, Passion Week. And then the Bible tells us in Daniel that after that, some things are going to happen. The Messiah is going to be cut off, which He was a few days later. Uh, when he was betrayed and arrested and tried. And then he tells us, Daniel tells us that the temple's going to be destroyed, which it was a few decades later in 70 AD when Titus, the Roman general, marched into Jerusalem and destroyed it. But we've got this final seven years of Daniel's prophecy. Uh, It has not happened yet. We're living in this gap of time between the 69th week and the 70th week. The Bible comes along later and tells us this is the church age, Ephesians chapter 3, a mystery. We're living in this age, but there is a future seven-year period that's coming. And as I've written about in my last three books, the the central figures during that seven-year period are the Antichrist called the beast in Revelation and the false prophet. And uh, we don't know when this seven years is going to to start, but I can tell you quite clearly that the stage is being set for the types of things that are going to be unfurled under the direction of Satan as his two minions work together to exert full-spectrum planetary control over the whole earth a one-world religious, political, and economic system. And, uh, you know, if you look at uh, Israel in Bible prophecy, you see, for example, Jesus on the day He ascended to the right hand of the throne of God, the disciples wanted to know, are you at this time going to restore your kingdom to Israel? Jesus did not respond by saying, oh, no, you silly disciples, haven't you figured it out yet? I'm done with Israel. Uh, The church has replaced Israel. Israel has no future. There's not going to be a temple or a kingdom or a throne. There's not going to be literal boundaries. There's not going to be a millennial reign of of myself. The the church has replaced Israel. He did not say that. It would have been the perfect opportunity to dispel the notion of a literal kingdom, were that the case. But instead, he affirmed the disciples' 
obsession with the kingdom. And he said, no, not yet. Not yet, but he's coming. I'm coming. Uh, according to the Father's times and the seasons. Jesus on the Olivet Discourse, just hours before He was betrayed, uh, the next day uh, on Wednesday at the Olivet Discourse, he, he said, look, when I come back in all of my glory, then I will sit on the throne of my glory. Where is He going to sit? In the temple. He says, when I come back, I'm going to gather together my elect. That's Israel, His chosen nation, from the four winds of heaven uh, from one end of, uh, to the other. And that's when He's going to regather Israel into the land in fulfillment of Every Old Testament prophet talks about the regathering of Israel in belief into the land, finally fulfilling the promise made to Abraham 2,000 years before Christ. That has not happened yet. When Israel was reconstituted as a nation, it was a huge moment because now the prophecies of Scripture begin to make sense. Remember, Daniel said some of the prophecies really aren't going to make sense in his day. Well, now they're beginning to make sense, aren't they? Now you've got an Israel on the map. You've got an Israel that can have a temple and have a reign and have a rule. In the, early, in the late 19th century, early part of the 20th century, we saw the rise of the modern Zionist movement. And at first it was met with scoffing, and nobody could believe that this ancient biblical city of Israel would reemerge. But Theodore Herzl wrote uh, his book, The Jewish State, in 1896, and he convened the first Zionist World Congress at Basel, Switzerland in 1897. He put forth at the time what he suggested was the Uganda plan, where the people of Israel would be given a homeland in Uganda. But guess what? Uganda is not the holy land. It's not God's chosen land. And so uh, he said this in his, fa- in his diary, a very famous quote. I'm going to ask Brother Sam if he'd read that for us. <laughs> Let me help you out. He said, at Basel, I founded the Jewish state. This is 1897, remember. If I said this out loud today, I would be answered by universal laughter, maybe in five years, but certainly in 50, everyone will know it. Remember, he said this in 1897. And what happened about 50 years later? Well, on May 14, 1948, Israel declared her independence and was granted statehood. To this day, Israel has never occupied the full extent of the land that was promised to them in Genesis 15. On the screen, you see modern-day Israel in red and blue as the outlines of uh, the millennial uh, kingdom. It constitutes some 300,000 square miles. So the granting of statehood to Israel is a key event in Bible prophecy. But we also see Israel in the news even more so today, and that's what I call the Gog and Magog stage setting. The battle of Gog and Magog is clearly spelled out in Ezekiel 38. Son of man, set your face against Gog, who is from the land of Magog. So Magog is a reference to Russia. We don't have time to make that case etymologically, but it's quite clear geographically in history that that's what we're talking about here. So the Bible predicts that prior to the return of Christ, there will be an invasion of Israel by nations from the north. He goes on in the next few verses, the prophecy does, to mention Persia, Ethiopia, Put, Gomer, Togarma. If you give these geographic regions their modern-day names, Persia, of course, is Iran. Ethiopia is Sudan. Put uh, equates to Libya today in our day. Gomer is Turkey and Togarma is Syria. Now, let me ask you a question. You see those five nations across the bottom of the screen? Anybody hear much about those nations lately? Absolutely. They're all over the news because, uh, as the Bible says, there are going to, there's going to be this invasion of Israel by a northern alliance and its allies uh, from uh, the south and east and west. Well, lately, Iran and Russia are getting pretty chummy. We see this all over the news. And in fact, I believe we're living in pretty uh, precarious times. I don't have the time to make the case for that this morning, but if you come back tonight, I'm going to talk to you how I believe, about how I believe things are going to unfold. I'm not a prophet. 
I certainly don't have any inside information, but having studied this for 30 plus years, I can give you my educated opinion that we have entered a new season in Bible prophecy, and we're going to see some pretty rough things if the Lord tarries is coming, and we need to be uh, need to be ready for it. But you know, in some conflicts, our enemy is our ally, and other en- others, our allies, our enemy. Sometimes we fund the enemy, and then they come back to bite us. Sometimes we bomb the enemy. Even the most seasoned foreign affairs experts have trouble making sense of it all, and it's hard to tell who is influencing whom these days. And uh, I tell you what, a friend of mine sent me a rather humorous uh, diagram to kind of help explain what's going over, on over there in Eastern Europe and the Middle East. And by the way, while we're all focused on Eastern Europe and the Middle East, keep your eyes on Southeast Asia because I think we're, we're going to see some things flare up over there in uh, North Korea and uh, China. Uh, but, so one of my sources provided me with this helpful explanation of what's really going on to pave the way for Gog and Magog. So hopefully that will clear it up for you. Uh, I'm sure that makes, <laughs> makes a lot of sense now as we see what's happening. But all kidding aside, One thing's for sure, nation states are rising and falling before our very eyes, and it's not pretty. We're seeing the stage set prophetically. Recent headlines that we've all seen over the last few days, Gaza crisis deepens, U.S. pledges support for Israel. Netanyahu says Israel is fighting on all fronts, and every Hamas terrorist will be destroyed. Israel steps up Gaza attacks and forms a war cabinet. And then we see headlines like this that kind of connect, and I'll connect these dots a little bit more tonight, but J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon warns that this is, quote, the most dangerous time for the world in decades. And he also talks about how the burgeoning national debt and the largest peacetime fiscal deficits ever in U.S. history also are weighing in on this problem. CNN just yesterday had a headline, Iran warns of, quote, far-reaching consequences if Israel doesn't stop the attacks on Gaza. Where we heard about Iran? Well, we just read about Iran in Ezekiel 38. So the Gog and Magog stage setting is a key way that Bible prophecy uh, is being, the stage is being set for the end times. Number three is this globalism surge. Now, I'm going to have a lot more to say about globalism uh, tonight, uh, but Psalm 2 is a key passage of Scripture written by a King David. The Psalm doesn't tell us that itself, but in the New Testament, the book of Acts tells us plainly that David wrote Psalm 2. Uh, so we know this is a Davidic Psalm. And it's one of the key proof texts for understanding the Luciferian conspiracy. The Luciferian conspiracy is the subject of my last three books that came out over the last 18 months, Spirit of the Antichrist, Volumes 1 and 2, and the brand new one that just came out three weeks ago, Spirit of the False Prophet. The Luciferian conspiracy is both biblical as well as what they admit in their own terms is happening. It constitutes Satan, evil celestial beings, and human accomplices working together as a a group of three conspiring to take over the world and throw off uh, the cords of God's control. You see, Satan has control issues. He tried to overtake God in heaven. He orchestrated a coup that didn't end well, and so now he's set his sights on the earth, and he will not stop until he takes full control. And in God's divine plan of the ages, for seven years that will succeed. The unholy uh, trinity, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet will rule and reign for seven years in utter terror and utter wickedness. But only to be defeated at the Battle of Armageddon when Christ comes back and casts the beast and false prophet into the lake of fire and casts Satan into prison for a thousand years where he awaits his final doom and will join eventually the Antichrist and false prophet in the lake of fire. But here's what David says, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? See, this conspiracy to take over the world and usher in a one-world satanic government, it's, it's vain. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen at all. The king's 
Uh, it won't succeed at all. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together. There's the conspiracy against the Lord and against His anointed. That's against Yahweh, the creator of the universe, and His eternal Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. What are they saying? They're saying, let us break their bonds. Notice the capital T. It's a reference to the triune God. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords away from us. They want to have control. But what is, how does God respond? He who sits in the heavens shall laugh because He's already said, I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. That's a pro, what we call a prolepsis. Christ is not reigning in Jerusalem yet, but it's as, as if He is. It's as good as done. God's already said, look, He's won the victory when He defeated death, hell, and the grave, and it's just a matter of time until He takes up His rightful position on the throne. We read in Revelation 13 that all the world in this globalism, uh, you know, this glo- future globalist world uh, will marvel and follow the beast. That's the Antichrist. We know that the kings of the earth and the whole world will be gathered together against Christ at His return. Today, the World Economic Forum is the biggest and most powerful of the many globalist organizations that influence the world. I have a chapter on this in my newest book, uh, Spirit of the False Prophet, Rise of the Global Technocracy. I've also got two chapters on it in uh, Volume 2 of Spirit of the Antichrist, uh, The Gathering Cloud of Deception. But the man who sits at the helm at the World Economic Forum, of course, is Klaus Schwab, born in Ravensburg, Germany in 1938. He was a child of Adolf Hitler's regime. He's in his 80s now, and he really feels a sense of urgency, along with the other Luciferians, to usher in this one-world system. He's dedicated his life to reinventing Hitler's dystopian nightmare and trying to turn it into a reality, not just for Germany, uh, but for the whole world. He often likes to don this galactic garb, especially when he's making uh, major announcements, and it will come as no surprise to see that he's surrounded by a number of other Luciferians, most of whom are Davos men, and there's quite a few Davos women too emanating from the World Economic uh, Forum. But while the Luciferian conspiracy is not monolithic, right now Klaus Schwab is indeed in the driver's seat. He sits at Mission Command. His book from a couple of years ago called The Great Reset talks about five pillars of civilization that need to be reimagined. One of these is the geopolitical reset. And this relates to this surge in globalism that we see. In the books, I have a lot of incredible quotes from him from that book. Uh, But his book last year that came out, sort of the sequel to The Great Reset, it's called The Great Narrative. It came out in 2022, and he's even more brazen in his descriptions of this globalism uh, surge. And listen to a couple of quotes that I put in for this morning's presentation. He said, "...the geopolitical and technological landscapes are being reshaped." in a way that will make them unrecognizable in just a few years. He said, solutions will require a great deal of innovation and dramatic changes in our economies and societies, as well as in the institutions, laws, and rules that govern them. He's talking about a one-world system. We've got to get rid of national sovereignty. Well, this plays right into Scripture. For example, in Revelation 17, we read about the ten horns and the ten kings um, and how they will ultimately make war with the Lamb. Uh, This is leading up to the battle of Armageddon. Well, you kind of take that biblical prophecy. We see a lot about that in the book of Daniel as well, and you overlay that with recent history. The Club of Rome, for example, is a secret group founded by Aurelio Pecci, David Rockefeller, and Alexander King in 1968. Uh, They were meeting at a uh, special meeting in one of the Rockefellers' homes. 
And the Club of Rome was instrumental in establishing the World Economic Forum. I connect all of those dots in that Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2, a chapter on the World Economic Forum. But their stated goal in their own writings was to establish a one-world government. That's what they want to establish, to do away with national sovereignty. William Cooper, in his famous book, Behold a Pale Horse, said that Aurelio Pecci made it clear from its inception that the Club of Rome's desire was to, quote, take control of the world, end quote, and to, quote, reduce the world to a safe level by process of benevolent slavery and genocide. Uh, one of the chapters in Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2, is a chapter on the depopulation movement. And uh, that'll chill you to the bone when you see what household names of world leaders and business leaders are talking about uh, doing to get rid of uh, the useless breathers, as they call them. Um, the world's elite, Petschy said, need to, quote, increase the death rate. And he even suggested, this is his words, quote, a plague be introduced that would have the same effect as the black death of history. Well, why do I bring up the Club of Rome? Well, they published a, a book shortly after they founded the World Economic Forum. The next year, in fact, they published a famous book called Limits to Growth, which advocates depopulation. It is extremely influential among eugenicists to this day. You still hear about it on mainstream news. It's brought up in a positive light again and again in the mainstream media. But interestingly, the very next year, in 1973, the Club of Rome put forth a plan to divide the world into, guess what, ten regions or kingdoms. The first map of a ten-region division was done by the Club of Rome in their 1973 report, quote, Regionalized and Adaptive Model of the Global World System. So you've got North America in Region 1, Europe in Region 2, Japan 3, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa in the fourth region, Russia and the Slavic nations in the fifth area. Uh, then you've got South and Central America, number six. Number seven is North Africa and the Middle East. Number eight is Central Africa. Number nine is Southeast Asia and India. And then China is number 10. So as you think back through, particularly since World War II and the reestablishment of Israel as a nation, we see this globalism surge that is reaching uh, its pinnacle in our day. And they have been targeting the year 2025 for over 100 years. In my book, Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2, I have a chapter called The Luciferian Timeline. We also have a DVD on that. But uh, a gal named Alice Bailey, uh, who started a publishing company called The Lucifer Publishing Company. She was a leading, she and her husband were leading Luciferians in their day. Uh, she claims to have channeled a demon named Master D.K., and she wrote 10,000 pages of writings, most of which were published posthumously uh, in the 1930s and 40s. Fifteen times in those 10,000 pages, this demon allegedly told her that the year 2025 was the year that they're going to bring it across the finish line and usher in through this divine council, the satanic divine council, uh, the New World Order. Now, I mentioned very clearly in the book, uh, and I want to hasten to add right now, that does not mean it's going to happen. Because what the Luciferians forget a time, a time and time again is that the ultimate arbiter of the timetable is Almighty God. And so we will not enter the final age, the kingdom age, and the new heavens and the new earth until God says we're ready. But that said, it's kind of helpful to know what the enemy's blueprint is, right? I mean, if the Dallas Cowboys could, could get a hold of the uh, opponent's playbook and study it and see what their game plan is before the game, they might finally win a Super Bowl. I don't know. I mean, uh, cheating, it worked for the Patriots and it worked for the Astros. So, you know, you never know. Whatever it takes, right? Uh, I wouldn't put it past Jerry Jones, that's for sure. Um, but it is helpful to know the enemy's playbook, right? 
So we need, we'd be foolish not to, to listen to what they're saying, to look at the leaked documents and uh, the declassified documents and their own white papers. And this is what they're working towards. So in the last 70 years or so, we've seen this globalism surge with the United Nations, the World Health Organization, the World Trade Organization, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank. And then more recently, we have the BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, just earlier this year. In August, they met and, and added two new nations to their group, uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And then starting in 2024, in January, they're going to be adding Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, and guess who? Iran. So BRICS, I believe, is not going to constitute the ten-nation confederacy. I think it's more of an economic play. I think it's going to be used, uh, as I talk about in my chapter on CBDCs and the brand new book, I think it's going to be a key player to help uh, destroy and bring down America economically. But everywhere you turn, they're talking about world government. Every year there's a world government summit. I cite uh, the, the one that it was held in 2023. It's always held in Dubai extensively in my book. But I, I thought, well, let me see what the next one's going to be about. The next world government summit, which will be held in February, what is their theme? What do you think their theme is? Their theme for the next summit is shaping future governments. They feel like they're so close to destroying national sovereignty and ushering in a one-world government they can uh, taste it. Uh, number four in my top ten list here is this glaring slide into tyranny. This glaring slide into tyranny. If you look at the role of the Antichrist and his henchman, the false prophet, uh, he wants to conquer, and he will stop at nothing. Bloodshed, whatever it takes to, to exert a full-spectrum uh, planetary penitentiary. He wants control over everyone. And as I talk about in the new book, Rise of the Global Technocracy, Satan, of course, is not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. He's not going to be able to take over the world without some help. What is he going to use to do that? He's going to use technology. That's what, the, that's what a technocracy that they've been talking about uh, since the 1970s in earnest, but really it goes back to the 1920s and 30s. A technocracy just means rule by technology. So they're going to use technology to track and hack everybody and be able to control uh, the world during their reign of terror. That's what he wants to do. Uh, the false prophet is spoken of here as another beast, a second beast, this one coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast, the Antichrist, but he causes all those in the earth to worship the Antichrist, whose deadly wound was healed. He goes, we go on to learn that he, the false prophet, was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and uh, cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. This is tyranny. This is control by force. We go on to read, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand and on their foreheads that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the beast or the number of his name. This is government tyranny, global tyranny. You cannot do anything without government approval. I'm going to have much more to say about this uh, and the signs of the times leading up to this uh, tonight as we rapidly descend into a state of global tyranny. But let me play this short clip here uh, from Yuval Noah Harari. I've got a whole chapter on him. He is, I think, one of the leading candidates for the false prophet uh, today. But here he reminds us of how dictators are dreaming about the ability to eliminate privacy and know everything about us. It's about 34 uh, seconds. Science is not really about truth. 
it's about power. For the first time in history, it's possible to completely eliminate privacy. Mm -hmm. It was just never possible before, and it is possible now. Something fundamental has changed. Mm -hmm. I mean, dictators always dreamt about completely eliminating privacy, monitoring everybody all the time, and knowing everything you do, and not just everything you do, but even everything you, you think and everything you feel. They could never do it, because it was technically impossible. Now it's possible. Now it's possible. Dictators dream about eliminating privacy. I really believe, uh, you know, Yuval Noah Harari checks all the box, boxes. I'm not trying to play pin the tail on the Antichrist or the false prophet, for that matter. But when it comes to Harari, I mean, I think he, he's a good, if nothing else, foreshadowing of what this uh, evil uh, leader will uh, be. Uh, he was born in 1976, raised in Israel as a secular Jew. He purportedly taught himself to read at the age of three and was placed in a class for gifted students by the age of eight. I have uh, a whole chapter on him, do a deep dive into his background and some of the ways that he's out there championing uh, globalism. He's, uh, you have all know, Harari's right-hand uh, guy. But what did we just read in Revelation 13, 11? That he's going to have two horns like a lamb and speak like a dragon. He may look like a, man, a lamb, but believe me, he sounds like a dragon. The 19th century German atheist philosopher Nietzsche said this famously, God is dead. We all know that quote. Well, 120 some odd years later, Yuval Noah Harari is out there saying, God is dead. Yes, God is dead. It's just taking a while to bury the body. In other words, you conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing Christians who believe in God and His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, just need to let it go. God's dead. He's been dead for a long time, and, and you just need to let it go and jump on board the Luciferian bandwagon. Harari said, quote, we don't have to wait until Christ's second coming in order to overcome death. A couple of geeks in a laboratory can do it if you give them enough time and money. And here's another uh, hero of a lot of people these days, and I want you to be very, very careful about Elon Musk. Uh, he is not who Fox News and some of those are, you know, painting him to be. But I put the quote on the screen. It's just seven seconds. I'm going to play it, but I put it up there because it's not the best audio quality. But listen uh, to what uh, Elon Musk uh, astutely said. Because if one company or small group of people manages to develop godlike digital superintelligence, they can take over the world. They can take over the world. That's exactly what the Luciferians are trying to do. And then finally, I want to close out with number five for this morning, and then I'm going to tell you what the five that we're going to look at tonight just to kind of give you, to kind of whet your appetites a little bit. But the fifth, I think, clear sign of the times that we're getting close is godless spiritual apostasy. It's all around us in the church today. At first, it appears to be only a lane change, but it is a major redirection. I love this meme. It said, are you tired of the same old Christianity? Well, try progressive, right? Uh, you know, why, why continue to swallow the stale taste of the historic Christian faith when you can try something new and different? Our theology soup is loaded with exciting extra-biblical ingredients and spices from the East, New Age, to fortify your spiritual journey. Frankly, we don't know what's in this stuff, but that's what makes it so mysterious and yummy, right? Progressive Christianity. This is right out of the words of prophetic Scripture. The Spirit expressly says that in the latter days some will depart from the faith, giving heed to doctrines of demons. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but instead will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. I always like to remind 
uh, churches, when I'm in large churches like this one that are, have incredible uh, God-fearing, Bible-teaching pastors like Brother Sam, who's been here forever and is rooted and unwaveringly committed to the authority of God's Word as the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices, I always like to remind you, you may not travel much and see other churches, but you are unique. You are blessed beyond measure. Most churches have long ago departed from the authority of God's Word, and the Bible tells us uh, that in the last days perilous times will come. So what are some of the manifestations of apostasy? Again, I get into this in the latest book that just came out last week, but let me give you one right here in, our, in this own state. I grew up in Texas, so I can still kind of call it uh, Texas. I, I now live in uh, Camerado, but… Uh, but uh, <laughs> Uh, and speaking of communists, this story comes from the People's Republic of Austin, our neighbors to the south here in Texas. Uh, but this is from September 17th, just three weeks ago, the first AI-generated service. If you don't know much about AI, read chapter 6 in my new book. It will scare you uh, to death. Uh, but I'm just going to play you the first minute and a half of this service that they had at the Violet Crown City Church in North Austin, Texas. Listen to the pastor as he introduces a church service that was created entirely by AI. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. I'm glad to have this time with you. My name is Jay. I'm the pastor here at Violet Crown City Church. Thanks for joining us, along with all of those joining us online. Well, in case you haven't noticed, uh, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. We are entering somewhat uncharted territory um, by celebrating, offering a worship service that is entirely generated by artificial intelligence. Before we let AI take the wheel, so to speak, let, let me AI share take a few the wheel. Human-generated words, uh, especially for our uh, first-time guests. So, the order of worship today was generated by ChatGPT, which is an AI-powered large language model chatbot. To generate the service, I used the following prompt. Create a Sunday morning worship service for a church that values sharing life and belonging to one another, inclusivity for all, working for justice and following in the way of Jesus. Include four familiar hymns or contemporary worship songs, a call to worship, pastoral prayer, children's message, offering time, communion liturgy, and a, and a sermon, and one original song to reflect the message of the sermon. Can you imagine walking into church and the pastor standing up and saying, hey, I hope you don't mind, I've given the reins of control to artificial intelligence. Speaking of that, in my new book, I talk about AI Jesus, and we did a little experiment in which we asked uh, several questions, one of which was, if I'm a good Muslim, can I still go to heaven? And the AI Jesus impersonating the one and only true Jesus, replied with these words, My dear friend, I'm here to offer love and guidance to all who seek it, regardless of faith. It's not for me to determine who enters heaven. <laughs> he says, All I'm looking for is a sincere and humble heart. Embrace love, compassion, and righteousness in your life, and the universal values cherished by many faiths. Now, this is beyond troubling. I don't have to tell this group that. Not only does the AI Jesus give false information about how to have eternal life, suggesting that a humble heart and devotion to seeking truth and goodness will bring salvation, 
but it also calls the real Jesus a liar. Because the AI pretending to be Jesus said, quote, it's not for me to determine who enters heaven. And yet the real Jesus said unequivocally, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life, John 6, 47. The real Jesus also told the thief on the cross, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. The real Jesus guarantees eternal life to all who trust in Him and Him alone for it. When the AI Jesus was asked, what will happen to me at death if I'm not a Christian? It responded, well, at the moment of death, every soul embarks on a journey beyond the earth realm. It is not for me to specifically declare what awaits those who have not professed faith in me. Once again, the AI Jesus has it all wrong. See, the real Jesus emphatically and unambiguously states what will happen to those who die without believing in Him for salvation. He does not equivocate like the fake AI Jesus did. The real Jesus said, quote, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe I am He, you will die in your sins, John 8, 24. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41, when He comes back, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That does not sound like someone who it's not for me to say. (laughs) He is God, and He makes it very clear. And tragically, thousands of people, particularly young people, are turning to AI Jesus to find salvation. Sadly, many liberal progressive pastors, I don't even feel like you can call them pastors, are turning to AI chat GPT to run their services. But the real Jesus said plainly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Faith in Jesus must be exclusive faith. It leaves no room for other pathways to heaven. No one or nothing else can offer forgiveness of sins and eternal life, especially not artificial intelligence. So we see all kinds of examples of apostasy. We see mainline pastors talking about how the Word of God cannot be trusted. Here's uh, Andy Stanley uh, talking about how our troubles began when we started teaching the kids the Bible, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He said in a tweet, we, we, the Christian faith does not rise or fall on the accuracy of the 66 documents uh, of the text of the biblical text. He said, it's next to impossible to defend the entire Bible. Andy, you are dead wrong. And he is the face of the apostate church today. So lots of other examples that I could give you. We're out of time for today, but I want to leave you with one more that is so critical in our day, and that is a stunning lack of discernment. That is a sign of this growing apostasy that is all around us. People need to read 1 John 4.1, which is in the context of the Antichrist and the false prophet that I've written about in my last three books. And it says, brethren, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. We are entering an age, if the Lord doesn't come back soon, and by the way, it would be great if He came back today. Um, You know, we're Baptists, so I'm tempted to maybe put it to a vote, but I don't think the Lord (laughs) is going to honor our vote. Uh, It's really up to Him, but amen, come Lord Jesus, amen. This is such a troubling time. But if the Lord doesn't come back, it's going to be next to impossible to distinguish truth from error, fact from fiction. Those lines are being blurred. I had someone just last night send me a a video clip of a news article uh, that I I really questioned right away, and so I did a little digging, and sure enough, it was an AI creation. It wasn't true. You've got to watch everything uh, that you see. So there we have the first of five uh, ten reasons. So I talked about the granting of statehood to Israel, Gog and Magog stage setting, 
globalism surge, glaring slide into tyranny, and a godless spiritual apostasy. Tonight, we're going to get a little edgier. So if you're interested in any of these topics I'm about to show you, come on back tonight and I'll show you how we are getting closer and closer to this final cosmic battle. We're going to talk first about the great satanic reset. I'm going to diagram out for you the Luciferian conspiracy and tell you who some of the key players from the earthly side, Satan's earthly accomplices are. Then I'm going to get into UFOs, UAPs, the U.S. government, how this upsurge in spiritual activity in the unseen realm that's bleeding over into the atmosphere is demonic to its core. It all started with the dawn of the modern UFO era in 1947 once talk began about Israel becoming a nation. I'm going to connect all those dots for you. Then we're going to talk about the gathering storm of financial collapse, government surveillance, and the what I call the gender surrender movement. So I hope you'll come back tonight. But before we close, I just want to leave you with one more uh, plea that now more than ever we need to, to get our spiritual house in order. You know, in Matthew chapter 7, people are familiar with this verse, but they forget one short phrase. Jesus said, many will say to me, in that day, Lord, Lord, I have not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me. What day is he talking about? We're all pretty aware that life is fleeting. It's but a vapor, James says. We're not promised tomorrow, and we tend to contemplate our mortality. But how often do we stop and contemplate the return of Christ? That day is coming. It's closer than ever. And people need to be ready. Jesus said, or John said in John 3.36, John the Baptist speaking here, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life. See, the gospel is so simple a child can understand it. You can state it in 10 words or less. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. We have a whole bunch of gospel tracts out there that we give away at every conference where we speak. We encourage you to take a handful, give them out to people that need to know the Lord. We also have a little cross puzzle. We have a few of those left from last weekend's conference that's a great way to illustrate that salvation is not by works. So you can't earn it. You can't be good enough to do it. You can't impress a holy God with your good works. It's a free gift paid for by the blood of Christ. And you need to come to the point where you recognize you're a sinner and that your sin comes with a steep penalty. It consigns you to a literal place of torment called hell for all of eternity. But God loves you so much that He sent His Son to pay that debt on your behalf. He paid a debt He didn't know because we owed a debt we could never pay. And when He rose again the third day, He purchased life with His own blood, and now He offers it freely to all. Whosoever will, let him come drink freely of the water of life. But just as you did, God didn't force us to eat the apple, He's not going to force you to get saved. If you insist on rejecting the free gift... That's on you. God doesn't send anybody to hell. He's doing everything He can to keep people from hell. The gospel is going forth worldwide. And I hope if you're here today, uh, you've trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation. If not, we're going to have an invitation here. Brother Sam's going to come. If you need to come and place your faith in Christ, this is the day to do it because I promise you things are uh, heating up. Maybe you're already a believer. You just need to kind of do some business with the Lord and come down and kneel at the altar and and pray and just uh, kind of have a conversation with the Lord. Or maybe you've uh, stumbled into this church on the day of a guest speaker. I promise you, Brother Sam is a far greater expositor than I'll ever dream of being. This is a fantastic church. Maybe God's calling you to join this church. Whatever it may be, as the Spirit of God leads, you come. Let me pray for us before we have our invitation. Father, thank you so much for uh, just your word that it never returns void. I thank you that you've spelled out for us so clearly where this world is heading. And I'm thankful that we know who wins in the end. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here today that doesn't know Jesus, that today in simple childlike faith, they would place 
their trust in him as the only one who can forgive sin and give eternal life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.